Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. This next guest is the composer of the new Netflix series The Crew, and he's also currently scoring Netflix's Black Summer and Hulu's The Mighty Ones. He also owns Gramoscope Music, which provides music for some of the shows that you watch and love, including ABC's Families, The Foster, MTV's Sweet Vicious, and many, many more. The composer is Alec Pirro. How you doing? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Pretty good. Just a nice uh, rainy day here in Southern California. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, you grew up in California, right, Alec? I did, yeah. I grew up in Santa Monica by the beach. Yeah, I, I I love California and Santa Monica. I've definitely gotten the chance to go all over, and I don't know. I, I love it here. I, I love the sun. So, have you ever lived in any other parts of the world? Yeah, I lived in uh, I lived in New York City for a year or so, and I lived in Whistler, Canada, for you know about ten months. And other than that, just traveled lots of places, you know, from, you know, being in a band back in the day, touring and, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Right. So as a kid, I mean, it seems like you had a pretty musical childhood, maybe, but did you want to be a touring musician, like from a young age? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like most kids, when you get into learning an instrument and, you know, in my case, you know, wanting to be in bands you kind of, you know, you, you look up to all these like iconic, you know, rock and roll figures or jazz figures or whoever it is. And yeah, the thought of being in a band when you're younger and touring the world and, you know, it's, it's the coolest thing ever. You know, that's, that's kind of like a driving thing to, you know, play live music all over the world. So yeah, that was definitely, you know, that was definitely inspiring at the age of, you know, 13, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Was there a specific band or a couple that, that really uh, had a big impact on you? I know for me, it's probably like Led Zeppelin and Ozzy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, Led Zeppelin, huge. Cause I, you know, back when I was, I started with piano when I was like seven, something like that. And then I got really heavily into drums at the age of like 13 through my teen years. And so obviously Led Zeppelin, you know, Van Halen was just massive for me. The police, I mean, the list kind of goes on. I, I, I got very, you know, techie in terms of like really learning, you know, the theory and rudiments and how to read. And like, I really went in big to where, you know, I was like listening to like Return to Forever and Chick Corea and like, you know, really wanted to get like into progressive, like, 
how sick can I play? Like how technical can I be? You know what I mean? So I was kind of in that phase in my teens before I started really, you know, composing and writing songs and all that. Right. It's funny you mentioned the police. Cause I feel like I never hear the guitar players mention the police, but it's always the drummers. Andy yeah. Summers is amazing. I love Andy Summers. I mean, gee, his tone, his whole thing is so awesome. Yeah. I think he's very underrated, but yeah, Stuart Copeland for me is is the rocker of the group. Yeah, Stuart Copeland is uh he's pretty awesome. He's got a unique uh, style for sure. Are you a fan of his uh film scoring stuff as well? Yeah, for yeah, definitely. I mean, he did Rumblefish, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rumblefish is really cool and yeah, no, I'm definitely I've always been a fan of his for sure. Gotcha. So when did you uh I don't know if it was like a conscious decision or if uh, there was just a moment where you're like, huh, this film scoring thing seems kind of cool. Was there any like moment of seeing a film or something or was it knowing a composer? Yeah. I mean, I always, I mean, I've always loved film and television. And when I did start making music, you know, it was always a thought because a lot of my like really close friends were starting to go down the road of like writing or directing or producing. And, you know, I, God, I was even in the band before I had thought about composing the first, the first really cool job I had. I, I, I interned on that movie heat, you know, with uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And uh, I think it was like 16 or something. And I was in this, like, I was in this band with a couple friends of mine. We like, you know, made a, a record and, you know, played around town. And I remember giving Michael Mann the CD, And just being like, hey, you know, if it works anywhere in the movie. (laughs) And for two seconds, uh, one of our songs was placed in the background in in, uh, Natalie Portman's room because she was like a young, uh, she was like the young daughter. Uh, But it it never made the cut. But I definitely, yeah, I've always been fascinated with that. And, you know, as time went on, the one thing I learned from, you know, all of my, you know, mentors or people I got the chance to, you know, spend time with or bounce stuff off that were, you know, successful in that field. It was always about, you know, composing and writing your own music. You know what I mean? Because, you know, certain people have the temperament to be in a band with, you know, four other people. And obviously if your band becomes, you know, Coldplay or Nine Inch Nails, it's like, of course you're going to do that. That's that's amazing, (laughs) you know? But uh, I, in the back of my mind, I was always like, if that doesn't happen, it's like... and even if it did, I still, this is what I want to pursue. And so I guess in my late teens, I started writing songs. And then I actually went to uh, California Institute of the Arts, Cal Arts up in uh, Valencia, California, and studied, you know, theory, orchestration, you know, got really back into the piano because I was really, you know, starting to kind of score friends, short films and whatnot. And, you know, had like a small setup that I took uh, on the tour bus when, you know, after college, my band, uh, Deadsy, uh, got signed to DreamWorks Records and we put out our first record in like 2002 and got to like tour the world and, you know, kind of have the whole fantasy in terms of, you know, that world. Um, but, uh, I was always writing and, uh, just trying to hone that craft more and more and, you know, put myself out there. Right. And when you say that you were writing, were you also producing or did you make music with computers or just 
uh, even recorded on like cassettes or or whatever. Because I I guess a lot of the job of composing uh, to picture is producing and delivering something that works. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I early on, you know, even before Pro Tools, you know, had like a four track, and you know, I knew that. I, you know, I'm not one to rely on other people (laughs) for much. You know, I really, you know, I feel like, especially as a composer, you have to be self-sufficient. You have to be able to create something from start to finish. So it goes out the door and it's a finished thought. So, you know, I was uh, on the bus. I had like a little writing rig. I think at that point I was maybe on Cubase or digital performer or something and, and was just making demos and writing and like kind of learning how to mix and, you know, make stuff sound as good as I could. Obviously that's a, you know, lifelong journey to, to get better and better at like making your stuff sound great. But, uh, yeah. Cool. And I mean, coming from the band world, were there any production tricks you think you picked up um, in the studio that helped you as a composer now? Yes, 100%. I mean, I definitely, you know, in making records, you know, we would always have some like, you know, amazing engineer or when it came time to mix, you know, like just a, a great producer, mixer. So I definitely would kind of watch and ask questions and even in some instances get help it definitely started me down the road of that for sure. And, and influences me to this day, obviously. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I kind of miss about the production part of being in a band. It's just that, that collaborative, whatever. Cause I guess with film composing, sometimes we are just locked in front of our computers, yeah. especially now Yeah, where, um, I don't know. It's a funny thing. Cause I guess there are all these educational things like mix with the masters or, or just YouTube where you can learn other tricks, but there is something about seeing your friend throw that plug in on or, or just manipulate a guitar in a certain way. And then you learn to borrow that idea or the trick, I guess. Yeah. Or just make it your own. I mean, sometimes mm. I have to try and make things sound almost like crappy or old or bad, which is really hard to do <laughs> actually. But yeah, no, it's, it's a fun, I mean, that's the whole point to me of, composing and why I'm so passionate about it is because you're learning every day. Like if you, if you're not trying to learn something new, it's like, you're going to just keep writing the same chords over and over and using the same techniques. And I mean, it just, it gets stale. So it's great to try to like, even if it's one thing a day, you know, you're learning something new or practicing. And luckily with a lot of the projects I do, they're always different. Like the three you mentioned up top, it's like they're all opposite of each other, which is makes it so fun and so fresh, you know? Do you ever have any, um, I don't know, I mean, I kind of find it refreshing to, you know, if you're working on a horror series or something, then to, I, I feel like if you're stuck on just one project, then you can really inherit the, the mood of it and it can affect you emotionally so what, what are some of the pros and cons you think of of balancing three completely seemingly different genre uh, projects um i mean for me uh just throughout this whole process ever ever since i decided you know this is what i was going to do it's like i realized pretty early on that i think you know most composers hopefully realize this but that you know half of this job is obviously being good at what you do, practicing, honing your craft, you know, being the best you can be 
on the music artistic side, but then there's this other 50% where you really have to put yourself out there and you have to reach out to people and you have to put your music in front of people and you got to hustle because that's how you get jobs and opportunities. And I spend every single day, you know, part of my day sending, I mean, it could be 10 emails. It could be in some days I've sent a hundred emails. You know what I mean? Like literally you have to put yourself out there. So I've always kind of been good at multitasking or that's kind of helped me multitask. Like, you know, with my company Grammoscope, it's like I have, you know, five full-time guys in the same studio with me doing different things, but you know, there's people walking in and out, things come up, you look at your email, you know, you got to jump on something while you're writing. It's like, I'm kind of used to that. So I like the, I, I definitely like to set in on one thing and really focus on it. Like I usually don't like score multiple shows within the same day, at least, you know? Right. Um, but it just depends. I don't know. I, I like jumping around kind of. Yeah. And it must be quite a challenge. I mean, owning um, and just running Gramoscope as well as, I mean, a, a composer career in itself is a full-time job. So yeah, it's kind of wearing a lot of hats. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they kind of complement each other. It's like, you know, obviously I spend my, you know, creative time composing, you know, what I love doing, which is, you know, scripted TV and, and film. But then on the Gramoscope side, there's, you know, all sorts of other things, you know. We do hundreds of unscripted shows, podcasts, you know, lots of licensing, commercials, branded content, trailers. So that stuff comes across too. So like if I'm not maybe like deep in on a show and like we're doing some you know, cool unscripted docu-series that needs a theme. It's like, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Obviously, you know, we, I include other people in that process. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, 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 it's a fun, it's definitely a balancing act, but I don't know. I like it to, I, I had many years of, uh, not being able to pay my rent and not being busy, trying to be busy. And, I definitely prefer the the fast, crazy pace of, you know, putting as much out there as possible because, you know, little by little, you know, things come back. So, yeah. And it was um, part of the thought process of starting the company, just trying to keep keep busier with, I don't know, I guess sometimes it's easier to get a couple of sinks here and there, or maybe not actually, I guess, <laughs> you know, uh, as opposed to trying to like just get hired as the composer for a gig. Or was it just that you had a lot of like library tracks too lying around? No, I mean, early on, um, I don't know. Everybody has an idea of what they want their life to look like. And, you know, obviously you want to live in the moment, but you also kind of want to, you know, just realize that certain things, learning an instrument, starting a business, whatever it is, it's like those are very long-term things. And you got to like go all in. And, and I would hate to to be like, oh, I, I really want to do this. And then three years goes by and you're like, oh, I should have started that three years ago. So with Gramoscope, basically the, the first real, you know, the first big film that I got to score in, I think it was like 2005, maybe. It was called The Good Night. Um, so it's like Penelope Cruz and Gwyneth Paltrow. It was like a big deal for me. Got to do an orchestra for the first time. You know, the film went to Sundance. It was like a real big moment and turning point. And I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. I am never 
I'm never going to score a reality show or a commercial or anything again. I'm only doing films. And then cut to six months goes by. I can't pay my rent. <laughs> so I kind of asked myself the question of like, how do I, you know, do the projects I love doing, but how do I also keep the lights on when mm -hmm. you finish a job, you're essentially unemployed, you know? So I slowly started to kind of like catalog music that maybe I demoed for something that didn't go or, you know, so on and so forth. And it just grew to what it is today. And luckily, you know, when there is any sort of downtime from scripted shows or films, it's like there's this other thing that's going. And now, you know, I have people kind of helping run that. So it's not solely on me because obviously one human cannot, you know, you can only do so much. Yeah. No, I mean, when I first moved to LA, I had a thought of starting my own music library and had it running for about a month and a half before I realized that it was, a, yeah, it's just a lot. I mean, the, if yeah. you want to take it, if you want to take it to the level of, you know, really saturating your music, you know, with, you know, throughout all the networks and production companies, you really, there's so much backroom administrative stuff that is such a nightmare that like you have to hire other people to help you with it because, It'll just take you down. Um, I also have a couple of questions left here before going to the last segment. One being, so you toured with Stone Temple Pilots, as you mentioned, in Lincoln Park. And I wanted to ask you about working with Lincoln Park uh, in the past. If you have any stories you could share with our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Lincoln Park, those guys are amazing. I mean, so talented. Um, you know, we went on our first, our first arena tour was uh, this thing called the Family Values Tour in 2002. And it was Deadsy, Static X, Stained, Lincoln Park, and Stone Temple Pilots. And I mean, wow, being in your 20s in the middle of all that, it was insane. It was so great. But uh, I became friendly with the guys in Lincoln Park and kind of stayed in touch over the years. And then my years are kind of all over the place in terms of pinpointing. But I think around like 2012 or something like that, they, uh, Joe Hahn, uh, the DJ in the band, he directed a film and they had set out to score the movie. And I think once they started to do it, it was maybe, I don't know if it was just, it was a little overwhelming or they just needed some guidance. So they called me, which was super flattering. And, you know, like you've done this, you know, this is what you do now. Like, can you, can you help us? And I was like, oh my God, this is such a cool opportunity. So I kind of, you know, it was really fun. I, you know, I, I would go to the band meeting every, you know, Monday or whatever and talk about the score and kind of, you know, broke it down for them. And at first kind of just like let them do their thing and wasn't kind of, you know, putting my thoughts in their head too much. But after like two weeks, they're like, hey, so we're, you know, we got to go on tour for like three weeks in Australia. If you want, you know, keep working on the film. And I was like, okay. And in my head, they kind of gave me license to kind of go through and kind of lay the foundation. And then when they came back, they all started to kind of, you know, write. And uh, it became like a really cool collaborative thing. And we got to score a movie together, which was super fun. I think uh, the movie's super dark, but like, I don't know, the music, it, it came out really well. And it was just a great experience to work with each of them. I mean, I still 
you know, talk to those guys. And it's, it's such a small world. Mike Shinoda, his kids go to the same school that my kids go to. So I see him all the time. It's a very small world. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. I think if it's okay with you, we'll go to the last segment for the podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you can say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> okay. Cool. So the first one I have here for you is DAW. DAW, my favorite word. <laughs> um, I actually am one of the few composers that uh, I, I compose in Digital Performer. I you know, compose and digital performer. And then, you know, everything goes into pro tools to get to the mix stage, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, God, I just started early on. I think I started on Cubase and then I went to digital performer and it's really just ease of use. I mean, I, I am very quick with it and I think it's really great for scoring to picture and, you know, it would really just be kind of a pain to switch to anything at this point in workflow wise when it's working so well. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the chunks in uh, DP is really, really cool for us. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I dig it. I mean, people seem to harp on it, but uh, I dig digital performer. If I, if I were to switch to something, I think I would go to logic most likely, but uh, I don't plan on switching. So cool. cool. Uh, next one I have here is uh, drum plugins. Hmm, that's a it's a touchy subject with me just because uh, I play the drums and uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, well, obviously in my studio I have live drums mic'd up and ready to go so I can jump on there. But uh, God, drum plugins. I mean, I guess I'll sometimes use the Slate stuff or you know even like battery or I, I just kind of a mix of a lot of different things. It just depends what the cue you're writing is calling for. You know, it could be like some 80s throwback drum machine thing, or it could be like a metal cue that I'm going to, you know, play live drums on or a big action orchestral thing that maybe I'm going to use like some damage loops or who knows. It's interesting you have a, a drum just mic'd up and ready to go at the studio at all times. Yeah. Well, I mean, I for me... Everything I do has to have real people, myself or whomever playing on it. It has to be human. There has to be humans on there. It has to be, there has to be some, if not all of it, it, it there has to be some organic feeling to it. Cause I just, you know, if you're just, obviously if you're writing, you know, there's certain things like for me, Black Summer, it's very electronic. There's on purpose, there is nothing organic. Like they, they don't, it all needs to be that thing. So it's a lot of like, you know, really degrading sounds and, you know, tweaking things through effects pedals. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I try to make things as organic as possible. So having drums set up or pianos mic'd, it doesn't ruin your flow when you're writing and you're like, oh, okay, now I got to like set this up. It's like, you just run over there and press record and yeah. That's a good segue into the the last one here, degradation plugins. Yeah. God, that's a that's a never-ending hole. There's just so many things. I mean, God, specific plugins. I definitely love like I use the Devil Lock, the Sound Toys plugin on a lot of stuff. I've been using like straight up guitar pedals lately to kind of mess with things as well as like you know, I use the waves, some of the wave stuff. I mean, you know, luckily 
one of the guys that works for me is super techy and super, he's just like so up on every new plugin and it's kind of my downfall a little bit. I'm not, you know, I'm always, I'm always looking for the new stuff, but he's like really in there. So he'd be like, dude, you got to buy this, check it out. And it'll be some crazy like distortion or so I appreciate having guidance in that uh, realm <laughs> a little bit. Well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. Don't tell the people what else you got going on. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, you know, just finished The Crew, which is uh, on Netflix currently, as well as Black Summer Season 2 should be coming out this summer. And The Mighty Ones Season 2 should be coming out. Uh, that's on Hulu, I think, probably June, July, something like that. And... uh I also have a film called The Gateway um, with like Olivia Munn and Bruce Dern and Frank Grillo that uh, is supposed to come out at the end of the summer if movie theaters are actually, uh, I don't know, open or anybody wants to go. Uh, and yeah, and just, you know, myriad of other random things, but uh, always trying to push forward and, you know, find the next cool opportunity. Awesome. Well, Alec, it was such a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk shop. So, yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.